Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 63rd episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I read an interesting article this week uh, penned by Jalopnik intern and (laughs) brutal truth bomb dropper Mac Hogan, which celebrated the demise of the family sedan. It was a pretty well-reasoned piece, uh, essentially arguing that anything sedans do, hatchbacks and wagons can do better. And while he's right in almost all regards, his vision for Hogan's America probably won't ever come to fruition. Because while much of the rest of the world has cottoned on to the fact that roads full of wagons and compact hatchbacks make for a more harmonious, utilitarian driving experience, we in America are obsessed with posturing. We don't want the added ride height of crossovers and SUVs to actually traverse lands unpaved. We just, we want to cultivate the image of someone who is just so adventurous they need an SUV for all the expeditions they're constantly embarking on. The unfortunate reality is we live in a post-truth nation where vanity is king and your selfie game is really the measure of your worth. A nation where sitting down with someone and explaining why a Mazda 3 hatchback has more cargo space, better rear legroom, and a better driving driving dynamic than a Mazda CX-3 is met with objections over not wanting to drive a, a mom car or, or not being cool. We make purchase decisions not based on how it makes us feel to drive because, I mean, then we'd all just be buying Mercedes E63 AMG wagons, but how we feel about how others will perceive us. So while the sedan death watch continues unabated, it shouldn't be celebrated because sedans never made more sense than wagons or hatchbacks. It should be feared because the crossovers and SUVs now flooding the roads make even less sense than the sedans they're replacing. And now that I've met my weekly quota of uh, societal doom and gloom, here's your top story. Canada. In many ways, America's younger brother, who, despite getting a later start in life and remaining closer to the parents that we rebelled so hard against, uh, turned into a cooler, more progressive, and not to mention nicer version of ourselves, and without all the hang-ups of being everyone's go-to guy when something is wrong in the world. We're so similar in terms of culture and values and economies that, that free and open trade among the countries has been a huge success for both sides since 1987 when the catchily named Canada-United States Trade Agreement was signed. Uh, in fact, Canada is one of the few countries with which the U.S. actually has a trade surplus, a not inconsiderable $8.7 billion last year. On a more granular level... The two countries are so intertwined that almost 310,000 jobs in the state of Ohio alone depend on Canada, with that one state exporting $18.7 billion in goods to the Great White North every year. Across the nation, nearly 9 million jobs depend on Canada, the country which buys more from America than it does from China, Japan, and the UK combined. Guy Lawson has a fantastic read in the New York Times this week if you want to read more about our long and beneficial relationship with Canada. But the point I'm trying to make for this story is that things are going pretty well. 
So why then would it be beneficial to impose tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum? Uh, the truth is it's not beneficial, and Canada has responded with their own tariffs on Kentucky bourbon and Wisconsin pickled cucumbers, specifically targeting the uh, states of Senate Majority Leader and the House Speaker, not because they hate bourbon and pickles. Uh, the problem is NAFTA, and Canada is merely caught in the crossfire of a looming trade war along our southern border despite being, well, on on the other side. Uh, while the U.S. and Canada are very much alike, with the latter having even higher labor and environmental uh, regulations than we do, neither country is much like Mexico, so wrapping them into a free trade agreement made little or no sense. Nevertheless, it happened, and NAFTA does need to be overhauled to square up some long-standing issues that have bred a considerable amount of resentment on our side of the fence. And Canada understands this, which is why they're trying, always politely, to help renegotiate in a way that doesn't result in the termination of the good thing we've got going on with them. But then there's this whole threat of a 25% tariff on foreign-made cars. The once-booming Canadian auto industry has been in a decline recently, but they still export a whopping 85% of the vehicles that they make there, with most of them coming to the United States. Since everyone with a brain knows that increased costs due to tariffs are passed along to consumers... Most analysts see the market reacting to tariffs in three ways. One, people will not buy new cars and instead look for used cars. Two, people will look for cheaper new cars or buy ones made in the U.S., which, by the way, is still going to be more expensive thanks to those steel and aluminum tariffs already in place. Or three, people will be put off from buying a car altogether, accepting that tariffs are temporary and people will come to their senses eventually, which is giving politicians an awful lot of credit. In any case, under the best projections, LMC Automotive is predicting that sales drop by 1 million vehicles within the first year, but it'll probably be closer to 2 million, or more than 10% of the market. If consumers react by buying used or locally made vehicles, it could potentially kill off production of vehicles in Canada completely, leading to hundreds of thousands of job losses in a country that actually pays us almost $9 billion a year for the privilege of trading with us freely. And more than the monetary threat to a country that poses us no monetary threat, to do so under the guise of national security to suggest that Canada may be nefariously plotting to destabilize our country by sending us their Ford Edges and Chevy Equinoxes and Cadillac XTSs, it's not just flimsy logic, it's downright offensive. Canada is the closest thing we have to a best friend in the world at a time when we're romping around the playground putting gum in people's hair and, and stomping on other people's toes. Christ, they fought along with us in Afghanistan for 13 years after 9-11. When we need someone to have our backs, it's Canada. And the least we can do is not stab them in theirs and claim it's their fault. <sighs> and that's it for socioeconomic political rants this week. Here are some headlines. In Germany this week, Transport Minister Andreas Scheuer made like a middle school principal and called Daimler CEO Dieter Zicci into his office. On Monday, he asked a sheepish Zicci if he knew how exactly five cheating devices were found in new Mercedes diesel engines. 
Of course, Dieter claimed he had no knowledge of such a thing and that it was his classmate, Martin Winterkorn, over there at VW who is the cheater. Well, said Principal Scheuer, he didn't believe that, but he did believe that Daimler had put defeat devices in as many as one million recent Mercedes cars to try to skirt the Euro 6 emission standards that, to make things right, Dieter would have to do the equivalent of resubmitting his homework which in automotive terms is recalling 774,000 of their latest diesel models. All joking aside, these cars were probably designed after VW's Dieselgate scandal came to light. So just how it was that Daimler, Daimler thought they were going to get away with this, I don't know. And how far does this diesel gate rabbit hole go? The, the more they cheat, the more it seems like diesel cannot be made clean and really has no future. Uh, just one week, I'd love to go through my Feedly, which is an RSS reader I use to aggregate my news and think, oh wow, not a single notable thing has happened about Tesla this week. I guess their 5,000 vehicle production rate is really humming along smoothly. Sadly, that was not the case this week, and they remain the brand mentioned more than any other on this show and on most websites. Uh, first, some lawsuits. One from an employee who alleges he was fired after he expressed concerns about workplace safety. Another uh, claims he was ousted uh, after expressing interest in joining a union. Both are crimes, but will probably be settled to nobody's satisfaction, and both have been denied by the company. Why cover this? Because such rumors have been floating around for a long time, and the more we hear about them, the more it seems like Tesla has kind of a toxic culture of secrecy, cover-ups, and anti-union sentiment, which is a problem when it comes to protecting workers' rights and well-being. Also, because no other company is having this sort of problem, at least not as visibly. Then came the news that Tesla is laying off 9% of their workforce in an effort to streamline efficiency and gain better profitability, which is to say, any profitability at all. Uh, it sounds like the cuts will come primarily from salaried positions because they need all hands on deck for the production of their vehicles. Uh, despite planning factories in Shanghai and Europe, Musk still claims he won't have to raise any new capital and that the company will be profitable by the third or fourth quarter of this year, so the culling is probably critical to getting there, or at least getting close. Finally, hot on the heels of a recent report from the Association of British Insurers and Thatcham Research indicated that calling vehicles autonomous led to dangerous gray areas and driver over-reliance on technology, Tesla announced that they will begin rolling out full self-driving features this August. Uh, details are scarce, as they are on the fact that the next Roadster will apparently have rocket thrusters. But if there's one thing that's certain, it's that people are too dumb for this technology. If you hear the word autonomous, and you immediately stop listening to anything else, and immediately start thinking that cars are going to do everything for you, you should not be allowed to be a passenger in a car, let alone driving. Seriously, go, go hop on a train. Anytime a car maker spends a billion dollars, it's going to get some attention. And that's just what Toyota did this week when it took a stake in Singapore's Grab Holdings, which is Southeast Asia's largest car hailing service, a company so big that it drew, drove Uber out of their home markets. That Toyota had to spend so much to buy in indicates not only the growing value of ride-sharing, but the view among car companies that they think that traditional vehicle ownership is going to be majorly disrupted by car sharing on autonomous ride hailing services. Toyota's big cash drop means they'll get a seat on Grab's board of directors, which analysts say almost guarantees that Grab will start buying Toyota cars for its service. 
As the saying goes, you got to spend money to make money, and with $54 billion in cash lying around, I'd say Toyota has some they can spend. Um, Toyota has increased partnerships and investments with a bunch of automotive disruption companies that focus on ride-hailing, ride-sharing, electric vehicles, and autonomous vehicles, so they are really hedging their bets that one or more of those is going to take off and they'll be well-positioned to take advantage. Once more, Ford should be taking note of how Toyota is doing business before they have to kill off their entire passenger car production because they didn't plan well enough ahead. Even though autonomous cars aren't very good right now, they won't always be glorified assistant driving systems. Uh, according to a report by uh, Securing, um, or Security America's Future Energy, uh, I don't know, autonomous vehicles will be so great for everyone and will lead to an incredible $796 billion in total annual benefits by 2050. This comes from congestion mitigation and economic impact, as well as the super-easy-to-quantify quality-of-life improvements. It also means cost-cutting for taxis and truckers, since those hundreds of thousands or millions of jobs will be taken over by robots. And it's, it's just like you always hear those people who lose their jobs to robots say, but my quality of life is so much better now that I'm unemployed. Uh, this report is full of bogus, or at the very least, dubious data and projections, including safety, because, as we've been learning lately, safety isn't exactly guaranteed by autonomous vehicles. But, I mean, maybe by 2050 they'll have it figured out. That's only 32 years, right? Uh, speaking of autonomous vehicles, when Ford isn't buying old train stations in Detroit to slap their logo on, they're building customized Ford Transit Connects to act as Postmates food delivery vehicles in Miami. Uh, the small vans will be equipped with curbside lockers to hold food, which will be placed in the car by the restaurant after a customer places an order through the app. The food will then be taken to the customer, who will receive a locker number and code to unlock the locker. The car arrives, customer gets food, we all move on with our lives without having to make polite small talk with the delivery person while you try to decide how generous you're going to be with their tip. Uh, in the wake of vacating sedan and small car sales, Ford may be jumping in with both feet on this sort of autonomous mobility movement sector. And, and this pilot could help inform systems and, and even a layout for an entirely food delivery-focused vehicle sometime in the future. And I, I look forward to the Domino's Transit that will cook my pizza when it's on its way to my house. I, I don't mind having to cut it because <laughs> it's not like the people at the store actually do it worth a damn anyway. Uh, starting on July 1st of this year, China will be rolling out a voluntary system by which all new cars will have RFID chips placed on the windshield of the vehicles, thereby allowing the Chinese government to use its dense network of surveillance technology to track you wherever you go. If you're thinking, well, at least it's voluntary, starting in 2019, it won't be anymore, and all of those 30 million or so new cars sold in the world's largest car market every year will be equipped with these chips. China already has a number of surveillance systems, including incredible facial rec recognition technology uh, in places that use artificial intelligence to track criminals and shame people with high debts or petty shit like jaywalking. So this is just another way of maintaining social control and probably another way in which China can expand its incredibly creepy social rating system. While it sounds like this is yet another step in China's journey into a dystopian nightmare, 
Bear in mind that we all carry around cell phones equipped with RFIDs, so this could already be happening in the U.S. without your knowledge. Despite beginning in 2015, here we are three years later and Volkswagen is still dealing with the consequences of their diesel cheating scandal, or Dieselgate. They set aside 28.5 billion euro to cover the sprawling fines and lawsuits stemming from their inability to make clean diesels that won't kill us with excess carbon pollution, but just this week they were hit with another 1 billion euro fine from the German government for the same scandal. The Germans' investigation was apparently much more exhaustive than the one we had here in the States because it took way longer, but also resulted in lower fines. Add to the fact that former owners of cheating cars in Vermont and Arizona will receive $1,000 for the hassle of having to turn their cars back in, and this thing only gets more expensive from, for VW. In any case, they just have to be getting close to putting this whole thing behind them. Just two bad millions of people in Europe who will likely die early from inhaling those exhaust fumes won't be able to. Sad. Uh, for the last... Uh, ever. Uh, people and politicians have been saying, where are the jobs? And this year, Toyota and Mazda came through, committing to spend $1.6 billion on a new plant in Alabama where everyone was super happy to greet them and their 4,000 new jobs. Well, almost everyone, because the Center for Biological Diversity has been saying for years, what about the fish? Uh, specifically, the spring pygmy sunfish, which is a rare species and could theoretically be driven to extinction by the construction of the factory and the various infrastructure and activities around it. Uh, in a lawsuit filed this week, the center alleges that there hasn't been enough legal protection for the fish's only known habitat near the factory location, and they're hoping to get the Fish and Wildlife Service to make some special efforts to protect the important characteristics of the apparently critical habitat. This is for a small striped fish that rarely exceeds an inch in length and already has been presumed extinct twice before someone found one living somewhere. But... Being the relative conservationist that I am, it strikes me that it can't be that hard to accommodate some small fish. Plus, what if there's, like, some sort of butterfly effect where if this fish dies, Elon Musk never gets to colonize Mars? Talk about a disaster. A new study released this week by Consumers Union and sent to me by Always Drive blog minion Jordan revealed that among 19 popular vehicle features, almost 1,900 drivers chose purchase cost, reliability, safety, and fuel economy as their top four most important in that order. The researchers also asked study participants which vehicle they would prefer, and participants generally chose options that cost 25% more but increased reliability, safety, and fuel economy. Less important were acceleration and performance, which surely indicates that this study pulled all the wrong people. Uh, setting aside the fact that the study's sample size was relatively small compared with the total car-buying public, this isn't really reflective of reality, with the average cost of cars climbing and the average fuel economy of cars sold actually decreasing since mid-2014, with the booming sales of SUVs and crossovers to blame. So, there's actually some sort of disconnect between what consumers say they want in an ideal car and what they actually end up buying. Go figure that people can't be trusted to tell the truth. 
Um, if you've looked on the app auto list for a car, which I highly recommend you do, you've probably seen a bunch of online only results from a company called Carvana, which will deliver vehicles to your door in a sort of backwards dealership sort of situation. Well, they also uh, come up with lists, and apparently after analyzing more than 1.6 million automotive sales from January through May of this year, they've come up with a list of vehicles they say get driven the least each year. In the top 15, you get your regular list of high-class Mercedes and BMWs that are someone's treat-yourself vehicle uh, when they're not driving their 94 Ford Ranger back and forth to work. Uh, and the same go with the Sunday cars like the Maserati Ghibli, Lexus RC, M4, and... Yeah, sure, why not? The Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, but also on the list are the Nissan Leaf and the BMW i3, which people don't drive because of range anxiety, and the Smart 4.2, which people don't drive because it's crap. Um, but there are cars on this list like the Mini Cooper, VW Golf Sportwagon, and Buick Encore, which are just sort of normal cars. Why are you not driving your Buick Encores, people? Is it because you're tired of people asking, Oh, that's a Buick? But leading the list are the Porsche 911 and the Chevy Corvette, which are driven just 4,700 and 4,500 miles per average uh, per year on average, uh, respectively, which is just a crying shame because they are both some of the best cars to drive. You stupid collectors are ruining everything. Um, after the bummer news last week that Matt LeBlanc was leaving Top Gear after his third season, we got a boost this week with the news that competing show Fifth Gear would be returning this fall with old hosts and top blokes Tiffany Dell and Jason Plato once again hosting after a three-year hiatus. Fifth Gear never had the budget of Top Gear, didn't do the crazy stunts, and always focused less on the antics of three weird oldies and instead on the cars themselves, which is... Uh, you know, attractive to the real car nerds out there, even if it was a bit tougher to get the significant others interested in it. As I mentioned, when the old Top Gear crew left for the Grand Tour, more car shows will never be a bad thing. And even if Vicki Butler Henderson doesn't return, I'm going to try and find a way to tune in in the States uh, if it starts playing here, and so should you. Uh, when they're not buying train stations, delivering Miami's to-go orders, or killing off popular vehicle models, Ford is busy filing patents uh, for silly things that have existed for decades. Um, recently, the company applied for a patent for a screen that drops out of a car's tailgate to provide a privacy curtain. One could imagine this being especially handy at the beach for changing out of a swimsuit before hopping back into the car, or for doing your business while out in the woods or when overcome with a sudden case of bowel evacuation syndrome because you ate curry for lunch and you knew it was risky, but decided, damn it, Daryl, just go for it. In any case, these screens have been around for years, and you can buy them on Amazon if you're the type of person who does not think about somebody just looking through the windshield of your car and seeing you despite the privacy curtain. Uh, the difference here is that they will apparently be built into the tailgate instead of being an add-on you purchase separately. There's also a variant that deploys into an awning, basically giving you a shady spot to sit behind on your car on sunny days. Plus, with the fact that Mustangs will be the only four vehicles without a hatchback or liftgate, this means that uh, they could apply it to almost every single car in their U.S. lineup. Eh, hooray for small victories, I guess. Um, after so many campaign promises by so many politicians to address the country's crumbling infrastructure, we're finally starting to see some progress being made. 
Oh, um, uh, did you think the government was doing something? Oh, sorry. Uh, we can't even get a coherent trade policy. Not, not alone roads. Um, the entity currently working on restoring our roads is actually Domino's Pizza. Under the guise of creating smoother rides for their delivery vehicles so our pizzas don't arrive in a jumbled mess, Domino's is fixing potholes from California to Texas to Delaware, and after paving over the road canyons, painting them with a very tasteful Domino's logo, and their tagline, Oh yes we did. Yes, this is a publicity stunt, and yes it's working, but hell no, I don't mind driving over Domino's logos in, in the streets instead of feeling the jarring crash of a six inch deep pothole, and wondering if my wheel has bent so much I won't make it home. Oh yes, you did, Domino's, because, oh no, our elected officials can't. Now for some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless it's brand new. You might see me in my whip with my The company behind the ubiquitous Humvee, AM General, unveiled this week the successor to their original military vehicle, and it's called the NXT360. While the U.S. has already committed to buying a bunch of the competing Oshkosh LATV, which basically serves the same function but is more bomb and bullet resistant to the Humvee than the Humvee, AM General decided to make their own bomb and bullet resistant vehicle. Uh, this one will withstand an AK-47 bullet from apparently any angle, as well as featuring bullet-resistant glass, mine-proof front wheels, and grenade-proof rear wheels. Uh, the seats and floorboards will also stop shrapnel from improvised explosive devices under the ground. And I'm not sure we'll be seeing either of these on the streets of, uh, inspired by true events, war movies, or on, on the streets being driven by white men for whom a, an Escalator Tahoe was not enough overcompensation. Uh, but it's good to see uh, something that will finally protect our troops a little better. I mean, if the U.S. military buys them. Uh, Biden is a name you might remember from this year's Consumer Electronics Show, uh, where they paraded around an electric crossover with a dashboard that was basically just one gigantic screen. Now they've come out with something else, a compact sedan called the K-Byte, which they say could cost as little as $45,000, even including that gigantic full-dash screen. Details on range and power are unavailable, but the company says the car will have level 4 autonomy thanks to a partnership with Aurora, a tech company founded by former Waymo and Tesla autopilot folks who are working with VW and Hyundai, so they definitely have some street cred there. Uh, Looks-wise, it's pretty nice in that sort of sleek, aerodynamic way. It has a design on the front, though, that gives it sort of a Cheshire Cat-like grin, which I find uh, unsettling and, and don't think I'd enjoy seeing in my rearview mirror. They say it'll enter production in 2021, which, um, sure, yeah, I guess anything's possible. Porsche has uh, not a new car, but a new name. Uh, Porsche have taken their Mission E concept and decided, yes, this is now a production vehicle, so it needs a production name. And the name they chose? Taycan. <laughs> Spelled T-A-Y-C-A-N. I've been told via Twitter, after making fun of its choosing because all of our other options were taken, uh, that it's actually pronounced Tycon, which makes sense because they have the Macon and Cayenne, but real talk, Porsche. N naming your cars after winds of the world is cool in theory, but you already have a problem where people from the South call you Porsche. Do you really want to be confusing people even further with another name we mispronounce because we say it like it's spelled? 
what was so wrong with new miracles like 914 or 924 or any new three-digit number starting with 9? Um, also not a new car, the Mazda Miata next year will be tweaked after damn near 30 years of everyone agreeing that the one thing the car was missing was more power. Uh, finally, Mazda themselves agree and are bumping the Miata from 155 horsepower all the way to 181 horsepower and increasing the red line. They are also offering a telescoping steering wheel, which I did not realize was a thing any new car in 2018 came without. Uh, the catch here is that this info has only been released in Japan, and that there's no word on if the power bump and steering wheel changes are coming to the rest of the world yet. Mazda aren't commenting on this, so it could be all a fire drill that results in everyone being super disappointed that Mazda once again ignores its enthusiasts. The Aston Martin Rapide, which is damn near 10 years old yet remains one of the best-looking sedans in the world, is approaching retirement age, but the British company is extending its life with a new AMR version, which of course stands for Aston Martin Racing. That can only mean more power, more speed, more cost, and lime green stripes. All of that is true, uh, with the vehicle now propelled by a 580-horsepower 6-liter V12 that'll hit 62 in just 4.2 seconds on its way all the way up to 205. Um, it'll also be about 35 grand more than the standard model, sitting at a pretty $240,000. Of course, the fact that it is that ridiculous four-door coupe style means the back seats are basically unusable by anyone older than about 12 and it seems awfully irresponsible to be driving a 12-year-old around at 205 miles per hour. I'm not sure who this car is for. Just just get the DB9, which is, looks even better, or the DB11, which is newer and cheaper. But still, this is a pretty, pretty car. I've never actually seen one in person, which I guess means the people living around me have more sense than I give them credit for. Although it's uh, primarily happening on four wheels, the electric revolution is hitting the two-wheeled market too, albeit at a slower pace than even it is with cars. Alta Motors, which has been building electric bikes for years and who is recently bought into by Harley-Davidson, has just announced their Redshift EXR, which is a dual-sport bike, meaning it'll handle the, either trails or roads without problem. Uh, in three hours on a standard outlet, you'll have charged up enough for some distance of range that they haven't yet specified on their press release. Uh, they did, however, specify that the bike would get 50 horsepower and 42 foot-pounds of torque, which is a lot for a bike weighing just 273 pounds. Top speed is 71 miles per hour, so you will be maxing it out if you plan on hitting the freeway with this thing, but it definitely looks more comfortable and rideable on the trails. Uh, that lightweight won't lend itself well to stability at high speeds, but it should be very maneuverable at low ones. Painfully, though, the price is pegged at $12,500, which is just about four times the price of comparable gas-powered bikes. The innovation is cool, and there's less to go wrong, and you don't have to deal with the clutch or gears, but I think I'd just rather shift myself and save nine grand. Uh, the electric bike market is still waiting for cost parity, much like the electric car market. Uh, and I mentioned last week I was really excited about the Honda Monkey coming back to America, but now I'm even more super excited because Honda Motorsports is bringing back the Super Cub. Again, this probably requires some exp explanation from most Americans, but the Honda Super Cub is actually the best-selling motorized vehicle in the history of motorized vehicles. It's sold more copies than the Ford F-150, which many people find hard to believe until they visit a place like ta Taiwan, where freaking everybody is on a scooter in every weather condition, and most of them are Super Cubs. 
Um, it was last sold in America in 1974, so that might explain why people have never heard of it. The model coming to our shores will be the C125, which uses the same 125cc motor as the Monkey and will sell for $3,600, which is not cheap given the small motor size, but it is actually the largest engine the Super Cub uh, has had in its 60-year production history, which tells you how much people can do with so much less. Uh, it'll top out at 55 miles per hour with the rear wheel driven through a four-speed transmission without a clutch lever in the classic uh, scooter style. You can just twist and go, switching gears with a quick flick of your heel or toe. Um, these should hit stores late this year or early next year, and I will be happy to see them back on the roads. Finally this week, uh, a story from Winstead, Minnesota, where during the annual Winstock Music Festival, an intoxicated music enthusiast decided it'd be a great idea to stick her head inside the massive exhaust pipe of some guy's lifted pickup. In true bro-dozer style, the truck found a girl willing to get inside and refused to let her go. Um, the fire department had to come and use the jaws of life to saw through the exhaust and get the girl, who, mind you, did not know the owner of the vehicle that had to be cut up, out. She has apologized, but not offered to pay for a new exhaust for the bro's dozer, and has sheepishly accepted responsibility for her drunken actions in a sort of, uh, sorry, hashtag sorry, not sorry sort of way. Uh, for her trouble, she got momentary internet infamousness and a ticket for underage drinking. Now, I know none of my listeners are dumb enough to to try this or to buy a truck large enough for someone's head to get their stuck in the exhaust of, but I don't know what kind of friends you keep. So remember, friends don't let their friends stick their heads in strange exhausts. Uh, thank you for listening this week. Thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. And by the way, I found out that he actually goes by the name of Bralitz on Spotify. So if you're on there, look him up. It's spelled B-R-A-L-I-T-Z. Uh, and check out some of his other music, like the song Hipster Denial, which I have had stuck in my head all day. Since the 24 Hours of Le Mans is this weekend, and I'll be watching at least some of it under our impending heat advisory, here is the sweet music of the class to watch GT3. Specifically, the Team 93 Porsche 911 RSR, driven by Patrick Pile, Nick Tandy, and Earl Bamber. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. (laughs) 